This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You are listening to Front Office Features with Rob Crane. Each week on Front Office Features, we have a discussion with a sports executive in an effort to take you behind the curtain to learn more about the inner workings of the business and provide insights to help start and grow your sports business career. I love this interview with Sam Zapatka, who is the operations manager for U.S. Soccer. I was a little nervous, in all honesty, going into the interview, as I had no idea who Sam was and never spoke to him on the phone or really had an email conversation other than asking him to be on the podcast. This one turned out awesome because Sam is awesome. He had three great quotes. Being comfortable in the uncomfortable situation. He shared with me a Taiwanese saying of, my pin rye. He says he's going to get a tattoo. Hell, I was so moved by it, I might get a tattoo. And uh, how to fail forward. You'll learn all about them in this week's episode. The passion for his job, along with the passion he has for giving back to the community, jumps out of the speakers. Sam took an unconventional way to where he is right now while working for Blaze, U.S. Volleyball, and Special Olympics. He also had a great he had great dealings with uh, veterans and with Veterans Day just yesterday he discusses how he worked with disabled veterans to get them back integrated into participating in sports I'm telling you man this guy is the man I learned so much from him. he tells great stories about winning the World Cup with the women's national team planning the parade in New York City then traveling to the ESPYs and then reflected on the craziest week of his life while eating Chipotle in Chicago I hope I don't overhype this interview, but this one was so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But before we get to the good stuff, please give us a follow on Twitter at FO Features and LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Front Office Features. Lastly, please share this episode and other episodes that you've enjoyed uh, and give those five-star reviews. So without further ado, here is Sam Zapatka the operations manager for U.S. Soccer. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane, and today my guest is Sam Zapatka. He is the event operations manager with U.S. Soccer. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. It's a uh, it's a it's a blast. And um, so, how I always like to tell the story about how we got connected. So I saw on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, I don't know, whatever one it was, a picture of you holding the Women's World Cup trophy because uh, you're a Springfield College alum. I'm a Springfield College alum. And I saw you holding the U.S. Women's World Cup trophy on the plane going home. And I was like, holy crap, how cool is that? <laughs> 
So that's how we got. I, that's the, and then I just reached out to you and said, "Hey, you got to come on the podcast, and you're gracious enough to do so. so." Thank you very much for doing so. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, probably one of the coolest moments of my life. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. We'll get into that a little bit. So one of the things. Let's start early. One of the things that I saw that was very interesting. You said, originally from Texas, I saw, but you went and spent what nine years at the International School of Bangkok. Yeah, correct. So I. Uh... Born in Texas originally, and yeah. then uh, my family and I moved to Canada for two years. And then afterwards, it was obviously way too cold. We had 18 feet of snow, <laughs> so that wasn't fun. And um, <laughs> 18 yeah, feet, that's got to be an exaggeration. Yeah, I swear to God, 18 feet. Oh, my God. Our, uh, I, was, I was climbing onto my roof um, when I was young, just like stepping on from, the, all, from all the snow. That's insane. So from the complete opposite, we moved to Thailand um, when I was eight years old. Um, obviously a huge culture change. I was, I was young enough to, I guess, not really understand it, you know, too much. Um, and then we loved it so much. We stayed until I was 18, graduated high school. Funny story, uh, Springfield college, my athletic director in Bangkok was a Springfield college alum. No and kidding. I, I crazy, right? Right. That's nuts. <laughs> so I had no idea. I knew I was coming back to the States for, uh, for college, but I didn't really know where. My mom was pushing for Texas. I was looking at UNC, a couple other places. And my athletic director, who I was close with, pulled me aside and said, hey, listen, go to Springfield. Check it out. Go on a, a summer visit. You'll absolutely love it. I promise it's a school for you. Got on campus, took a tour, applied an early decision, never looked back. That's awesome. I did the same thing. I I, th I applied the one school early decision and it was Springfield. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about the International School of Business. What uh, was your, your parents' job that brought you over there? And then, yes, I mean, not there. International School of Business, International School of Bangkok. My apologies. Yeah. we. Um, my dad worked for Chevron, um, the oil company. So we moved over there. And typically what happens is they'll probably rotate you every four or five years. It just so happened if we were to move um, kind of on that fourth or fifth year, my oldest brother would have been going into his senior year. Um, and he was like, hey, listen, I want to I want to finish out here. I want to graduate. So we did. And then obviously the trickle down effect. My middle brother was like, well, hey, if we leave in two years, I'm going to be a senior. And as the youngest kid, I was like, well, if we leave in four years, I'm <laughs> going to be a senior. So we, we kind of decided as a family we're going to stay the whole time. We always knew we'd come back to the States for university. So my oldest brother went to school in Clark and Worcester, and then my middle brother played rugby at Binghamton. Um, so Springfield was the perfect fit for me. I knew I wanted to be close to them um, on the East Coast, so it, everything kind of just uh, went perfectly. So being over there um, for as long as you were, that's got to shape you in a different way than, say, me who grew up in a suburban town in you know uh, outside of Boston, Mass. How did living abroad shape you and when did how, how did that just make you the person that you are now and what do you think is different than kind of the way that you grew up compared to the way that i don't know people who don't live in bangkok grow up yeah absolutely i think you know one thing um one thing I, my family and i talk about we're so appreciative of that opportunity right and i think the older i get um the more i'm able to reflect on just who i am because of because of thailand and Obviously, it will forever hold a soft spot in my heart. It was my my formative years of, of my life from 8 to 18, and it, it truly is my home. I think one thing that I always talk about, and actually I was having a conversation with the head coach of Springfield men's volleyball team, um, just talking to him and his class one time, is 
being comfortable in uncomfortable situations. So my whole life, my entire life, and I, I spoke a little Thai, but nothing, we called it taxi Thai. Get me here, get me there, all the best food. But being un, being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, my entire life, I was the foreigner, right? I was someone who would walk in with all my other buddies and we couldn't speak the language and we were trying to get around. But it was a it was an experience where you know, a lot of smiles, a lot of laughs, a lot of pointings, you know, we didn't have huh. iPhones back then. We had the flip phone. So it was just, it was, we were always in those situations where, man, we have no idea if we can get on this bus and go from A to B, or if I can pay for this. And you know, if it's a hundred bot or they're scamming me at a thousand. And it was just a, it was a situation where I got accustomed to a talking to people from different cultures, talking to people who didn't even speak the same language, but some way finding a way to communicate. And then bringing that kind of back to the U.S., it was just it was easy for me. I really enjoy um, talking to people and getting to know them on a more deeper personal level, whether it's for work or um, you know friends outside of work. And I think that's kind of shaped me to who I am. Um, one thing that if I ever if I ever get a tattoo, I told my mom she's like, "Don't <laughs> ever get a tattoo." Like, if I ever get a tattoo, there's a saying in Thailand. It's uh, my penrai. My penrai. What's that mean? My, my penrai, and it's so incredibly amazing because. The direct English translation is no worries. My Penrai is a Kuna Matata. <laughs> it is the coolest thing. And and Thailand is a, is a Buddhist country predominantly. So, you know, you're having a crappy day. Something goes wrong. Your car breaks down. Um, you know, someone gets, goes to the hospital. And, and everyone lives their life by My Penrai. You know, you're still breathing. You're still happy. Everything's going to be fine. And, it was, you know, I heard that when I was first, I think, like, I remember it was like I was 10 years old and I was biking to school and I fell over and some kid just kind of picked me up um, or some older older guy picked me up and was like, don't worry about it. My Penrai, my Penrai, my Penrai. And at that point I was like, what is my Penrai? So I remember getting to school and I was like, what is this saying that everyone, you know, constantly talks about? And, and that was it. And it was just an incredible realization now, honestly, for me and coming back to the States, be like, wow, that was that was special. That was a unique experience to be able to say, you know what, my Penrai. And and to continue to use that as I go, so that's awesome. My my pin ride. It's like, hey, don't worry. It's a bad day, stressful day. We're gonna yeah. be all right. Kuna matata, yeah. A kuna matata. That's uh, I love it. I love it. I think I'm gonna get a tattoo tomorrow with well, my pin ride on it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go together. Well, let's do it. <laughs> um, one thing um that I love when I was kind of doing some research uh, about you is. We talk a lot about it on this podcast. Go out and do. Go out and just go do things. I see you volunteered with the Special Olympics for like many years. What was the thought process of volunteering? Did you think that would help you through your career? Or did you just do it for fun? How did that come about? Yeah, actually, I started that in in uh, in in Thailand. We had this we had this awesome um, Special Olympics day where most of the students um, at our school would, would get involved and kind of help organize just this great sports day with all the Special Olympics kids from from Thailand. Probably had about 80 to 90. And it was just a, it, w- it was great. I think my parents always um, ingrained in us, like, you know, just give back. However much you can, you know, a little, a lot, just it, as it's always important, um, f- it was for us. And I really, really just enjoyed the Special Olympics and how great that day was for, for everyone. Um, when I got back to the States into Springfield College, that was kind of my first internship. I was um, volunteering. I reached out to one of the professors and said, hey, listen, I know you 
have been involved before with the Special Olympics, I would love to just kind of help out. So he connected me. Um, I ended up making a great relationship with the regional manager. Um, and then after my sophomore year, did an internship with them and then kind of just continued to, to volunteer as much as I can, um, which I'll, I think I'll continue to do for the rest of my life. So was that something that you were like, hey, man, this is going to help me in my career? Was this something that you just had a, a passion about? Uh, was that a combination of both? That's a good question. I think it was a, a passion I had about um, at first. And then when I was doing an internship and then kind of on the ground doing the logistical nitty gritty kind of stuff, you know, I thought, you know, maybe this could be a, a, a career path for me, um, which, you know, I credit a, a little bit of it too. Um, moving from this, the Special Olympics kind of to the Paralympics and then to where I am now, I definitely knew that I could, I could do this full time. That's uh, one of the things that we were literally just talking about um, was that there's more to the proverbial sports management world than just working for a team. Uh, mm -hmm. And you, you've been able to kind of uh, been, been able to work through what I'll call non-traditional just because it's not probably your core four sports teams. Uh, and you seem to have a passion for uh, community efforts, volunteering, um, did you consciously want to combine the two when you were doing that or was it just a good way to get experience? Yeah, I think it was just a good way to get experience. Um, obviously when the, the question you kind of asked before was, you know, just getting out there and, and getting as much experience as possible for me, I thought that's something I definitely wanted to do. And you hear it all the time, you know, the more experience you have on your resume, the more, um, you can put down and, and talk about, but I kind of wanted to focus on, on one thing. And, and that was the special Olympics and the Paralympics. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to be good at it. I wanted to say, you know, this is my niche. I didn't want to pop around from, you know, one to the next to the other. So I, I kind of focused and honed my skills in on that and just really found that I had a passion for it, enjoyed it. And, um, again, it's, it's led me kind of to where I am right now. I think it's very important advice that you just said is you found what you were passionate about and then honed in on that. What sometimes mm -hmm. people do, in my opinion, is they'll say like, well, I really want to do this, but to get my foot in the door, I'm going to go this sideway. And it never, ever, you know, I wouldn't say never, ever, but the it, it, way less of a uh, chance of that working out when you're not doing your passion to try to get to your passion. No, let's hone in on what you're good at, what you're passionate about. Take the time to reach out to people and talk about what, if you don't know what you want to do, uh, take the time, reach out, talk to people, figure out what that is, and then go after that full force. Yeah, ex exactly. So one of the things that I thought you did a good job is um, you were very active in our alma mater, Springfield College. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone, though, Sam, can go to such a prestigious uh, college like, uh, like we did, but everyone who goes to college can get deeply involved with their uh, university. Any recommendations to our listeners about how to get involved, what steps that you took, because you use your connections through your alma mater to really help start jumpstart your career. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's some uh, parallels that people can take from there. For sure. I think one of the one of the main reasons I, I chose Springfield and will forever be grateful for it was was the connections and relationships I was able to make with my professors. You know, I wanted I wanted a small school where, you know, by freshman year, junior or uh, sophomore, junior, senior, these professors could see me grow and I could go to them and, and ask for advice and, and help. Um, so I think my biggest thing was my freshman year, regardless, 
in the sport management department if I had a professor or not. I went over and I introduced myself and I kind of said, this is who I am. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm interested in. Um, I, I'm here to, to really, really work hard for the next four years and, and get as much experience as I can. So when I'm out in the real world, I, I'm kind of ready. So I think I did a good job um, of doing that. And again, kind of putting myself in uncomfortable situations, being rather comfortable. And it, it was great. I, I was able to to make a really strong connection with one of the professors, Professor Acorsi, um, who got me involved with Special Olympics. Next thing you know, he's reaching out to his buddy with the Paralympics. And I have my first internship over the summer. And then I graduated and I'm hired full time with uh, the original internship I had as a senior. So I think that the biggest thing is, is just putting yourself out there. And I know that's easy to say for every single person but springfield offers that opportunity to do so because it's such a tight-knit community that it allows you to go and talk to different people and um you know seniors and and any anyone kind of in that community is willing to help you just got to ask amen so do you have any advice for people so one of the things that you said earlier was I just went up to the professor and said who I am and I'm willing to work real hard for the four years. That step is vitally important, but people feel very uncomfortable taking that first step into having that conversation because they don't know how to do it. What advice would you give to them on making that first step? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I love talking to people. So for me, it's, it's just I'm going to I'm going to go in and introduce myself. I've heard about these guys. I'm going to make sure that I go introduce myself. It's just a you know, you, you first have to have a plan. You don't want to just walk in and, and, and say anything. You want to sort of be remembered and, and be the someone who, you know, kind of shines outside of, of anyone else. Right. Um, it's just about it's just about the, the confidence and, and, and being OK that, you know, Maybe at that point right now, they're not going to give you their full attention and anything like that, but just making the step because even if you don't do it, you have to try no matter what. And we always talked about failing forward, right? Just put yourself out there. Um, you're not going to hurt yourself by any means, and it's important to, to at least give it a go. I love the term failing forward. Describe it what, it, what that term means in your head. For me, and, and I've noticed this a lot in, in my work, um, you know, failing forward, there's no such thing as a, as a true failure. You can always learn from everything regardless. I fail all the time uh, in my regular job. There's so many different things going on. Things, unfortunately, sometimes fall through the crack. But my ability to say, you know what, next time that's not going to happen. I've learned from that. I've, I've taken notes. I'm always moving forward regardless of what I'm doing. It's, uh, it, I think that is, uh, that is great advice. And uh, by the way, Professor Corsi at Springfield College, this is like a Springfield College commercial I, so far, <laughs> uh, but uh, he was one of the, there was one person who changed my life. It was Professor Corsi, just the way they kind of took you under the wing. That was uh, 15, 16 years ago. So uh, great guy. I was just there a couple of weeks ago speaking to some of their classes. So uh, I'll have to tell him uh, we, we were able to connect. Um, so one of the things I saw too and I love this because we were literally just talking about this is the non-traditional way. Talk about Blaze Sports. How did you get connected there? Uh, and describe to the listeners what Blaze Sports is. Yeah, this was, you know, this was really an, an interesting experience for me and, and something I hold pretty dear in my heart. So I talked to Professor Corsi, didn't want to go the non-traditional route, NFL, NBA, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to do something a little bit more non-for-profit. 
Um, so I had an internship with Blaze Sports, which was the legacy of the 1996 Paralympic Games in Atlanta, Georgia. Really? So it was continued to go on. It was it was continued to fund by some uh, governmental um, uh, funding. And what we did is we basically put on sports programs for kids and veterans with physical disabilities. That's awesome. So I I my internship it was a, a summer internship, and I worked mostly with like wheelchair basketball, track and field, and then a couple of the veteran programs as well. Went back to school for a semester and then got hired full time. And when I got hired full time, I moved a little bit more um, closer to the to the veteran side. And for, and for this, it was kind of I helped, you know, integrate veterans back into into society through sport. You know, the, these guys were incredible athletes at their at their peak and obviously in the military, super fit, athletic, um, you know, driven and and. The next thing you know, they're they're missing two legs and they're in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. So how do we take that that same drive and athleticism that they had for basketball and say, hey, listen, it's just a wheelchair. It's just it's a, a wheelchair has nothing to do with wheelchair basketball. It's just a part of the game. It's a part of it's a piece of equipment used to play this game. Track and field, same thing. Instead of running, now they're on a hand cycle. Instead of uh, throwing a shot put, they're sitting down throwing it. And so really kind of bringing them out of the almost funk that they're in with and, and how depressed they, they, they could get with this new reality of, wow, I have, I've lost almost everything, um, whether it be a limb, PTSD, TBI, and say, hey, listen, you're still able to do what, what you can. It's just adapted. And I think people like that, um, they never lose their competitive spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I think it might sometimes go in hiding. You might know much better than I, but when you kind of bring it back out again, it's like a weight has been lifted off their shoulders. Uh, uh, I'm sure that you've seen that, uh, when you were working at blaze. Yeah, absolutely. We, we never said can't, right. We always said can, and, and for the, and for some individuals I got to be really, I got to get really creative, right. Um, it was, it was a cool experience for me young, right out of college, never said no to anything. I told my boss, I said, listen, I want to just learn. And in that environment, um, being so different from the big time sports, I was able to do everything. You know, I was building chairs. I was, I was traveling all over the U S with eight veterans in a 15 passenger van, pulling a huge trailer with all this equipment. And we're just going from event to event. We're cracking jokes on the way over, you know, I'm checking them into their hotel and one of them doesn't have a ADA bathroom. So we were switching things around and it always kept me on my toes, but an incredible experience. And you said you were able to be creative. Can, do you have an example of how your creativity was able to be let loose in a situation like that? Yeah. One of my, one of the guys I worked with, um, had CP and it was very difficult. A lot of times CP cer- uh, cerebral palsy. Sorry. Yeah. Cerebral palsy. Yeah, got it. So he was in a, uh, in a race chair and it was just very difficult for him the the flexibility to, to push down and get as low as possible. But when he got, when he was at that, that, um, angle to get low, he was just a monster and he could crush anyone on the track, but being able to get that low was very difficult for him and remain in that position for 400 meters. So not only did we get some nice, uh, gorilla tape, and flip it around and use it so that his um, gloves would really stick on the tires. But we got one of those elastic bands that everyone just uses for uh, for working out, tied it right around his back underneath his chair, had him in that position the whole time, and he just he crushed the competition. No, nope. one of those kind of last minute, how do we get him in this? Hey, let's try this out. Boom, we did it. So gorilla tape 
and uh, an elastic band that you would, you know, use for plyometrics. Exactly. Got this guy. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool, man. That's uh, uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So one of the things you went back and then you were the team manager for uh, USA Volleyball. One of the I, can you just take like what did your day look like? What did you do for USA Volleyball? Yeah, so. Credit to uh, Coach Sullivan. I was involved with the um, Springfield College volleyball team uh, when I was at Springfield as a, as a student, and I did. The college volleyball. volleyball team wins like national championships. Yeah, and they're rock crazy stars. good. Yeah, and Sullivan is is one of the best coaches in the in the U.S. And he at that point was getting called into USA volleyball to kind of cover their B team, um, and I was one of his assistants on the bench throughout college. And then he kind of I was able to. Again, being kind of in this non-for-profit and, and my boss being a Springfield College alum, of course, uh, would give me these opportunities to go and, and train um, and be in the gym with these guys. That was a little bit on the lower scale. I, I kind of did mostly data volley, which is a computer program that tracks, uh, live tracks the game. So I'd be able to, in the game, 23, 24, we're serving. Coach Sullivan's looking at me saying, hey, where do we need to serve? And I would be able to pull up my computer right then and there and say, Number five is the worst passer. If you pass it off of his right side, it's a 60% chance he's not going to get a perfect pass. Let's hit him. If it is, nope. you know, 80% chance they're going to set the right side. This guy always goes line. Let's let's block line. Those kind of things. Um, I did a little bit of the, the team coordination and logistics for flights and hotels and that kind of thing. Uh, but it was a little bit more on the technical side. Uh, which That's was awesome. Great. You're like a volleyball scout. Pretty much, yeah. That's uh... – that's really cool. So you were, did you do any analytical work that wasn't live during the game? Did you, what was your prep work like? Um, prep work was, was a lot of, of practice and training. We always would be in the gym a week out before some of the events we went to. So I did, uh, we went to Russia actually as, uh, um, Springfield college in 2013 for the world university games. Uh, 2015, we went to the Pan Am games in Mexico and then in 16, the, and 15 as well, the Pan American games in Toronto. Um, the prep work really was just being in the gym with, with the guys and my statistics kind of allowed coach Sullivan actually to make the the decision on who he should bring on and who he should cut. Crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, that's a, people are dying to be able to do that. You know, people are always saying they want to get into player personnel. Not a lot of people say volleyball player personnel, but that's yeah. what you were doing. And I think yeah. that experience uh, is just awesome. It's just awesome. Excuse me. Um, so let's get into this. How we really got, got uh, connected was I saw a picture with you with the Women's World Cup trophy. How the hell did you get involved <laughs> with them? How are you on the private plane holding the trophy? Can you just take a soup to nuts about how that <laughs> happened? It's amazing. Absolutely. And, and I'll backtrack real quick. So Blaze Sports, I was working with this guy, Stuart Sharp. He got hired as the Paralympic head coach for U.S. soccer. And at that point in my career, I said, you know what? I've been, I've been internationally and I've seen, I'm going to call it football because that's the real sport. Yeah, I've right. seen foot, football throughout the world. If I want to be involved in sport, it's got to be soccer. I'm in. So I basically, I sat down Stuart and I said, listen, I'm going with you. It might be full-time, might be part-time. I'm getting involved and I'm getting into U.S. soccer. So I worked with him part-time, worked my ass off, eventually got hired as the team manager for the Paralympics. 
then did the Paralympics in Rio, kind of moved on and worked a little bit more on our youth side. So I worked with um, our high-level U20 men and women's national teams. So I was now doing their FIFA Youth World Cups, traveling three weeks of every month. A young guy, I was just so excited. I was literally in Europe for or South America or somewhere in the continent watching these players play soccer. And it was awesome. And I, it was great. And at that time, it couldn't have been better. And then an opportunity opened up in our events department as an events operations um, coordinator that manage all of our men's and women's national teams. What I do now and one of my job currently as the, as the manager is, is to put on these, these events. Um, I'm actually sitting in a hotel in Columbus. We got a game tonight against Sweden, the women's national team. Game kicks off at, at 7.38, so at 10 a.m., me and my team are heading to the stadium, and we're going we're gonna to get everything set up for that game. But going to, going to the World Cup, and this, I think, goes back to a little bit of the relationships that I've, I've been able to, to create. I was able to run the what's called Friends and Family Program for our women's national team. Okay. So okay. we qualify for the World Cup um, in November of 2018. And in December, myself, uh, my boss, and two other colleagues went over to France, and we basically put on a camp for all the friends and families of the players. And this whole program is set to alleviate any sort of stress off the players from their friends and family. The last thing any player needs is a text message from mom on game day saying, where the hell are my tickets? I don't know how to get to the stadium. I can't get in, yada, yada. So we take all of that. And we reach out to all the parents and all the family members who are traveling to the World Cup and say, here's the hotel we're staying at. Here's how we're getting to the games every day. Here's the ticket prices. How many tickets do you need? And then we basically set up camp in whatever country we're in. This one obviously happened to be in France. So we started out with 86 uh, friends and family. Some starting, you know, from the very beginning all the way to the end. June 9th was our first game. People started coming in on June 7th into, into Paris. And we had this awesome hotel, which we basically took over every meeting space. We had this branded U.S. soccer stuff, photos of the players. Really, really cool. As we continue throughout the tournament, more and more people came. We're in the quarterfinals and we just beat France. I mean, everyone's going crazy. We're going to win the yeah. World Cup. You know, and, and the mindset of, of women's soccer for our national team is we're going to win. There's there's no we're gonna come second third we're winning this damn thing, so it just continued to build and build and build and we started with three um, three buses transporting us to the first game. We're going into Lyon the final game June uh, July seventh and we've got seven buses three hundred and sixty friends and family. Holy cow! And I'm and I'm managing all of those all those people when it comes to their hotels transportation flights um, tickets all that kind of stuff. And it was a really cool experience for me because it's not anything I've ever done. I'm usually on the operational side of the actual stadium and venue itself. So for me, for the first time, I could sit in the stands and just watch a soccer game. And I could hang out with all the, the players, parents, and their families and friends. And I just got to know them really well. And it was, a, it was an opportunity for, for me and my team to, to – we could, we could fail horribly or we could succeed ex- exponentially. And we did. We just – we crushed it. It was, we were all on the same page the whole time. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Winning obviously helps. helps right. You know, we never lost a game, so we were able, we were able to continue with that momentum and just move on and move on. But 
you know, we would we would go to the team hotel with all the with all the the family members to see the players, and it was just really cool. And these players were they knew me a little bit because um, they see me at every game in the U.S. But in in this specific role, I was literally dealing with their families. So a lot of them would pull me aside and just be and, and say, you know, thank God for taking care of my mom. <laughs> you know, 2015 in Canada, she was a disaster. She was always <laughs> texting me and all this stuff, but like. I haven't heard from her once. I don't know what you guys are doing over there in your in the uh, friends and family hotel, but thank you because it's helping. You know, so it was it was a unique experience for me to to make those those connections and those relationships. And then obviously we won the tournament. Um, and as soon as we won, you know everything started to uh, to just boom blow up. The next thing you know, I'm or- we're organizing a parade in New York City while we're partying in in Lyon. And, and I you got were wor- organizing the parade in New York City. Helping organize the parade in New York City, I was involved mostly with transportation. So all the uh, the buses from the airport to the hotel, hotel to the mayor's office, mayor's office back to the airport, flying charter to L.A., um, ho- uh, bus from the airport to the ESPYs, and then back. Incredible. Um, it, I mean, it was just – it was so funny. I remember – I'll never forget. I called my mom. One, we won on, we won on uh, Sunday, July 7th, partied all night, woke up the next morning – Flew back on that unbelievable charter plane, which I'm sitting next to Jill, just thinking, what is life? What is <laughs> this can't be real life, right? This has got to be a dream. Unbelievable. We get down. We have the the shower from the um, fire trucks. The mayor greets us. There's a helicopter like following us to our hotel. Get in that night. Um, parade the next day. All throughout New York City, just unbelievable. I'm on a float, just screaming at people, "We won, we won!" And everyone's screaming <laughs> back at me, and they're just like, "Who is this guy?" On a float? <laughs> How does he have any relation to the team? And I'm just like, "We did it!" And then um, immediately get on another bus. We charter to LA, basically shower within 30 minutes, walk into the ESPYs, get awarded the uh, team of the year. We do a site visit at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena because that's our first victory tour game that we just announced basically on the plane, um, which is in three weeks. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I got to I got to manage that. And yeah, right. then fly back to Chicago where I live. And I remember just sleeping for like four straight days. <laughs> right. I calling my mom and, and I was talking to her and she's like, how are you doing? And I was like, I can't even put into words these past, you know, four or five days. And I joking with uh, joking with her. I was like, I think I peaked. I mean, I, I don't know how I can come yeah. down. You know, I'm on a charter plane drinking this unbelievable champagne with the World Cup trophy. All the players are cheersing us. Parade, ESPYs, walking in. And now I'm back in Chicago in my apartment having Chipotle for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Is there a specific time when you were over there, a specific story uh, from the World Cup that, that, that's, that you'll never forget besides, like, the airplane? Yeah. You know what? I think it was... Probably the USA versus France quarterfinal game. Um, it was it was definitely you could just feel the tension in the entire stadium, and it and it felt it just, it felt like a World Cup final. And it was such a bummer the way the um, the group stages and everything played out, where we had to unfortunately meet them in the group in the quarterfinal and not in the final. Um, and I just I just remember looking around and seeing all these parents and friends and and wives and husbands and just the look in their eye of we're going to beat the French. We're, we're winning this game. And you, we were such a small section in the entire stadium. We played at PSG's uh, stadium. And the moment we scored, Megan had that first goal. You could, every, you could just feel 
just the whole air gets sucked out, except for this one small section of America. <laughs> you guys are just going nuts. Just going crazy. And I knew at that moment, I was with some of my staff members and actually the coach's wife. Um, and we looked at each other and, and we, you know, we kind of, we knew we, we're winning this damn thing. The whole thing, not just this game, not just a semifinal, not the final where this is destiny. And everyone kind of felt that same way. It was incredible. I got chills just thinking about it. That's awesome. I, I, I'm like enthralled with your story. This is like the coolest thing that uh, <laughs> that, that, I, that I have ever heard. Um, but everything is not always sunshine and roses, right? You, Absolutely. You, uh, I always, I can barely book a flight through kayak, and you're worrying about uh, travel from the ESPYS to LA to New York to parades with mayors. Talk about some of the challenges that you face through uh, each day, and how do you get through them? Yeah, you know, that's I can't stress enough that it's not always glamorous with sport management and just sports in general. Anybody and everybody knows it. And obviously we have these moments where we are, you know, celebrating with the, the World Cup and all that kind of stuff, but it's a grind. Um, it, you know, it's one thing that I I work really, really hard and I work a lot of hours, um, you know, 12 hour, 15, 20 hour days, especially when I'm on the road. And it's it's tough, you know, there's, I think the biggest thing uh, for me Nowadays, when I see other other people getting into sport management, is the idea of well, that's not my job. I don't, you know, I have a job description, and I have what I am was hired and supposed to do. But don't ever, ever in my <laughs> group tell me that's not my job. You know, I, two years ago uh, when we hosted a tournament called She Believes, it was actually in Columbus, and I still have the jacket to this day. I had to physically paint and line a field at six o'clock in the morning when it was snowing. While it was snowing, while it was snowing, at and six I in the morning, I still have my jacket. I'm gonna frame it one day. It's got paint all over it. <laughs> it was cold, but you know, there's there's a lot of challenges specifically in in my job. I I, I always kind of look at them as opportunities. We don't have a home stadium uh, in the United States for soccer, so anytime we put on a game, it's in a different venue throughout the U.S. And we could go from 25 to 30 venues a year alone. While we follow the same protocol and processes for that game. We're in a different stadium. So tonight we're playing in Columbus at Matt Free Stadium, which is the home of the Columbus Crew MLS team. We'll travel to uh, Jacksonville, Florida tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., go straight into a meeting with the Jaguars stadium at uh, TIA Bank and have to do it all over again. You know, so we're kind of a traveling circus and it's not all glamorous. Um, and, and there'll be times where, you know, we'll be up till to 1 or 2 a.m. moving equipment. Something right. that's, that's got to be done. And, and people don't, you know, think about it. The job description looks amazing and you're traveling every day with the women's and men's national teams. But it's tough. You know, there's there's 21-hour days where you wake up and after three hours of sleep and you got to be on and you got to be ready to go and you you can't miss a beat. Yeah, I, I think that's part of this, that they – I see pictures of you holding the Women's World Cup, but you don't see you 6 a.m. in the snow covered in white paint um, – you know, painting the the field, or you know, on three hours worth of sleep, then having to go to a, a a different meeting, or you know, like you said, moving equipment at one in the morning. It is not all. Um, my partner in this is a guy, Chris Valenti, and he rode a duck boat. It's not all about duck boats and the uh, and parades in New York City, right? There's a yeah. hell of a lot of effort that goes in uh, behind the scenes. Absolutely, yeah, and that's and that's the biggest thing is is all the prep work, right? You know, and and I credit so much to to Jill for for winning the World Cup. It's all about the prep work, and obviously, when we get on the ground, 
most of everything that we've we've worked our our asses off for is kind of done but the the lead up is just is so important and the attention to detail and just always being on that's one thing when we're in camp traveling around you know it's it's a 24 hour job if there was anybody um, that needed something, you know, I, I have my phone next to me and, and I'm getting blown up by, you know, people all the time and that you have to respond. <laughs> and, yeah. Right. And, uh, you say preparation. Our first, uh, guest on front office features was Larry Lucchino, who is the CEO emeritus of the Boston Red Sox. And he okay. always, he has this term that I'll, I've probably said a hundred times in this podcast and we'll say a hundred more is he is pathological about preparation. And, uh, it, it just keeps happening over and over again for the different guests that we discuss is preparation, 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 uh, is the key to success. So last question for you, you're very successful. You're very young. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who look to you, uh, as be like, man, that's a, that's uh, a path I would love to be able to take. What advice do you have for the future sports executive uh, on taking a similar path uh, as they begin uh, their sports business career? Never say no. Amen. Ne- never say no. There hasn't been a time or an opportunity where I, I said no to. There- there's never such thing as more experience or, or anything like that. I've, I've, I've been in a situation where things have always come up and I'm a, I'm a huge believer and you create your own luck. You know, a lot of times people are like, oh, you were super lucky. And, and I, I look back at it and I've been very fortunate just to, to fall into opportunities. And, and I think about that and I think what the, um, the prep work type of thing, I worked hard to get to that place. You know, a lot of people are like, wow, you're so lucky and, and all that stuff. But I, I was able to, to put myself in those positions because I never said no to any opportunity. Yeah, and, you and, just didn't wake up and say, uh, oh, there's an email in here that says I'm going to be the uh, exactly. event operations manager for U.S. soccer. No, you had the – there's a hell of a lot of work that went into it, and it's the effort that you put in to make that happen. Absolutely. And I think, man, you just got to – you got to work freaking hard. And I, and I, I enjoy working hard. I do. Um, and I like it. But you, you never say no and, and just work hard and understand that it's, it's a grind – Put yourself out there, um, and at the end of the day, it's it's you get opportunities like I like I had to be holding the World Cup. It's 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 an incredible story. Uh, I love that it would started at International School of Bangkok. And <laughs> yeah. How many countries have you been to in your life? Fifty three. Fifty three. Holy cow! That's awesome. Like that's you'll <laughs> yeah. never. Uh, you know, uh, my my father said, uh, if I have any advice for you, it is to travel the world mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think that you have taken that advice uh, to heart. 53 countries. Uh, what you're doing is just spectacular. Uh, Sam, I am so thankful that we're able to connect here. Uh, and I look forward to a new, uh, a new connection uh, and staying in touch. Uh, but what you're doing is just great. Keep up the great work. Uh, and it was a ton of fun talking to you. I'm like thoroughly enthralled with our conversation. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for joining uh, Front Office Features. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure, Robert. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll catch up soon again. Absolutely. We'll have to do that. Maybe we'll have a beer with uh, Bob Acorsi one day. Would love it. Yep, absolutely. Would love it. Thanks, man. Thank you.